right, so next I'm going to read the scripture lesson, and this is from Revelation 10, 8 to eleven thirteen. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was, giving a measuring, then I was given a me- measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for, the, for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Katie. You guys still glad we're spending the whole semester in the book of Revelation? Just checking. I still am. I I hope you are, uh, because even though uh, every week requires a lot of interpretation, I hope that you are seeing uh, and finding this book is actually really helpful. Uh, I think especially in teaching us what it means to be the church in a secular age. In other words, if you want to know what it means to be the church in a post-Christian world, then maybe it's really helpful to look at what it was like in a pre-Christian world. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. If you remember, this is a letter written to seven churches in first century Asia who were living in a time when the church had no cultural or political power at all. They were living in a time when professing faith in Christ came with significant cost, socially, economically, maybe even physically, as persecution was on the rise through imprisonment or even death. And brothers and sisters, while we're not facing those extremes here yet, 
And though we are mindful that many Christians around the world are facing things like that, still, I don't know about you, but we're starting to identify more with the churches we read about in the Bible, aren't we? Churches who are called exiles and outsiders with no power. And they're trying to figure out what it means to be faithful to God, faithful to Christ amidst increasing opposition and pressure to compromise. We're starting to relate. Because that's the tension that the church has faced throughout the ages, no matter when we find ourselves, which is how are we to get along in a world that is more or less hospitable to what we believe and what we practice? And in that kind of world, what kind of things should we be doing? What should we be committed to above everything else? What is most essential? Hopefully, you're wrestling through these questions at, at your work or in your neighborhood or in your school. And what I love about these middle chapters in the book of Revelation is they're, ha- they're helping us answer those types of questions. What's most essential? And it's doing it in its own rich and imaginative and symbolic and confusing way. <laughs> For instance, last week, if you remember, uh, we asked the question, what should we do when we feel most powerless in the world? In chapters 8 and 9, pull back the veil to reveal the hidden power that we have in prayer. We actually got to see what what our prayers look like from the perspective of heaven so that we could be encouraged that one of the most essential things we should be doing is persevering in prayer. And today something similar is going to happen. In chapters 10 and 11, we want to ask a different question, which is what do we do when we feel most hopeless about the progress of the gospel in the world? What do you do when you feel hopeless, when it feels like no one believes our message that no one even wants to hear it. To remind, you, to remind you where we are in context, so we're, we're towards the end of this cycle of seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are, are symbolic. They're, they're symbolic of the judgments that God will send against the world for its wickedness and particularly for its persecution of the people of God. These, are, these, these uh, judgments, they're warnings to repent before the final judgment. But it seems that no one is. And no one's repenting. Listen to the last verses of chapter 9, right before where we picked up. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's kind of depressing, right? God is sending all these judgment warnings, and no one's listening. No one's repenting. And so the existential question as we come to chapter 10 is this. Who then can be saved? Who can be saved? People are dying and rejecting the message of God left and right. How, can, how in the world can anyone be saved? And that's why it's so interesting that as we come to chapter 10, what's happening is there's a pause between the six and the seven trumpet. Which symbolically saying this, this is a pause before the final judgment. And what's happening in these chapters is John is pulling back the veil so we can see heaven again. To remind the church of the significance of their calling to be a faithful witness. To be a faithful witness. So the question is, how then can anyone be saved? The answer is, as you, church, persevere in being a faithful witness to Christ. In other words, the ordinary means by which God continues the extraordinary work of calling people out of darkness and into light is from the simple act 
of his people bearing witness to Christ in their lives. It's simple and it's beautiful. It's reminding us, you can be sure of this, church. This is your calling in a secular age, to be a faithful witness. Jesus was the first one. He was the first faithful witness. This is actually how we were introduced to him in this glorious vision in Revelation chapter 1. If you remember, it said, Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. And brothers and sisters, he calls you to be a witness too. In Acts chapter 1, the church received its commission. There it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's us. If you are in Christ, you are a witness. Now, you are either a faithful one or a less faithful one, but you are a witness. And today we want to look behind the veil to see how can we become a more faithful witness. So towards that end, I want you to see two things in this a bit confusing passage. One, I want you to see the plight of a faithful witness. And secondly, the promises to a faithful witness. So the plight of and the promises to faithful witnesses. First of all, the plight of a faithful witness. In this passage, John is in his vision of heaven and he receives a commission to be a faithful witness. But he's not just commissioned, he's commissioned so we can watch and see what we are commissioned to as well. And in our commission, we get a glimpse of what the plight of every faithful witness will be. In a word, it will be bittersweet. It will be bittersweet. It will be a bittersweet experience to bear faithful witness to Christ. We need to know this. We need to expect this. And this is symbolized in our passage in the eating of the scroll in verses 9 and 10. You notice John is commissioned by being handed a little scroll from the hand of an angel that represents the message of the gospel. And he is told by that angel that he's got to eat this scroll, symbolically. And he is told that in his mouth the scroll will be sweet, but in his stomach it will turn bitter. And that's exactly what happens. He eats the scroll in his mouth, it's sweet, in his stomach it's bitter. And friends, this is not the first time that this symbol has appeared in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the famous prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak of symbolically eating the scroll of God's word. And it is so sweet to their taste. Jeremiah says that God's words were a joy and a delight to his heart. Ezekiel says it was as sweet as honey. But it soon becomes bitter. It becomes bitter especially when they speak that same word to others and it is rejected. And this is what this is telling us. This is the plight of every faithful witness, from Jeremiah and Ezekiel to John to you and to me, which is that the same message that is sweet to you is going to be bitter to others. It will be sweet in your mouth, but bitter in your stomach. That is sweet going in, but bitter going out. Because the experience of being rejected will be bitter. And friends, I think that's the underlying problem in this passage. The original audience, the original seven churches in Asia that this letter was written to, they become hesitant about bearing faithful witness because they knew it meant being rejected. They had grown timid to speak the gospel for fear of rejection or even worse. They know what happens to those who speak the truth. 
right? Jesus is called the faithful witness, and let us remember he was crucified for it. Only one other person in the Revelation so far has been called a faithful witness. His name was Antipas back in Revelation 2.13, and guess what? He was killed for it too. The church knows what happens to faithful witnesses. In his commentary, Eugene Peterson says this. It is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. People who tell the truth not infrequently get killed. The word used in the first Christian century for telling the truth about God in a given situation, martus, has come into our language as martyr, the person who loses his life telling the truth. I'm guessing that somewhere near the top of your list of why you struggle to bear faithful witness is because of this bitterness of being rejected, right? You may not be physically killed because of it, but it, it involves a death of some kind. It's the death of your comfort, maybe the death of your reputation, the death of the status quo in your friendships, the death of your pride. There's a death somewhere in there. See, the plight of every faithful witness is bittersweet. But we are asked to continue to bear witness, even though we know there's a good possibility that we will be rejected. Notice in verse 11, and John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, you must again prophesy. You must not give up. You must continue to bear witness, even though your stomach is still bitter. How in the world do we do this? How do we run the risk of rejection over and over and over again? Brothers and sisters, it's by remembering the second part of that plight. It says, yes, it is bitter. Yes, it is also sweet. It is sweet. The gospel has to keep being sweet to you, or you will just give in to the bitter. You have to keep eating the scroll over and over and over again to remember the sweetness. The symbolism of eating the scroll is that of complete identification with its contents. This is not a mere tasting or a sampling of the gospel. This is a devouring of the whole thing. So that it becomes a part of you. So that its nutrients are absorbed into your very being. Brothers and sisters, we remember that Jesus first fully identified with us. Remember, he came fully into our humanity. He assimilated all the way down into your suffering in order to take your death upon him. And now, by faith, he invites you to fully identify with him. To take his life upon you. It's just symbolized in the savoring of his words. This means we don't spit out the parts we don't like. This isn't a buffet line where we get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. His whole revelation is perfect. As the psalmist says, it's more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You see, you persevere through the bitter because you're nourished on the sweet. And there are several hints throughout this passage of the sweetness that is in the gospel. Notice in the scroll in verse 8 is opened. That's different. The scroll from chapter 5 was closed and sealed with seven seals, and now it's open. And what that means is that Christ, in Christ, the eternal plan of God to rescue the world from sin and death is happening. 
The scroll's open. How sweet is that? That the message of God is being proclaimed to all nations, and people from all nations are believing it. Because the scroll is open. And God is at work. Notice also that the angel who gives us the scroll in verse 8 is standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. It's a weird detail. Why is that? This angel is described more fully for us in the previous verses, but he's a Christ-like figure. And his standing on both the sea and the land is a symbol of his sovereign authority over every realm. Over people and nations and languages and kings. Again, how sweet is it? That wherever you go to be a faithful witness, you can be assured that God is already there, ruling and reigning. And finally, notice that we are given authority when we are handed this little scroll. Just as the lamb was handed the big scroll in chapter 5 as a sign of his authority to execute it, so we are handed this little scroll as a sign of our authority to speak on God's behalf. Again, how sweet is it that God has commissioned you, yes you, to speak on his behalf. It's his story, it's his world, that he has given you the place of honor as a faithful witness. In fact, this is how God has chosen to change the world. Through a story proclaimed by ordinary people like you and like me. It's sweet, it's bitter, but it's also sweet. I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it, because the phenomenon in our world, in my, in my experience, is that the people that I least want speaking on behalf of the Christian faith are the loudest, and the people that I most want speaking on behalf of the Christian faith are the quietest. I'm talking about some of you. You are the beautiful, faithful Christians that I would love to speak for my faith, that God wants you to speak for our faith. The question before us is, why are we so silent? Why are we so afraid? What's the worst that could happen? Brothers and sisters, the plight of a faithful witness is bittersweet, but this is our plight. It is our, it is our calling. It is our holy commissioning. It is our privilege to risk the bitter for the sake of the sweet. That more and more and more people would taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the plight of a faithful witness. Secondly, let's consider what are the promises to a faithful witness. How do we endure the bitterness of the plight? Well, it's by believing the promises that God gives to us. And he gives us some precious, a few precious promises in this passage alone. First of all, notice he promises to protect us. This is symbolized for us in the measuring of the temple in verses 1 to 3. If you notice, John is given a measuring rod, and he is told to go measure the temple. This is another place where uh, we've gotten all sorts of screwy interpretations. This is not the literal temple in first century Jerusalem, nor is it any future literal temple. Remember, the temple is symbolic of the people of God. Because in the New Testament, the New Testament calls us, the church, a spiritual temple. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. We are living stones in this temple. So this, this act of measuring comes from the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament it is most often used for the sake of protecting something. You measure it in order to protect it. The church is measured 
its very dimensions known, every person in it marked out is God saying to us, this belongs to me, and it is marked safe. I will protect you. Furthermore, the symbol is actually interpreted for us in the next couple of verses, talking about the outer court and the inner court. The outer court represents the church in its dealings with the world. And it says the world will trample on us for 42 months. Again, that is not literal. 42 months equals three and a half years, which is half of the completeness of seven. It's a symbolic way of saying the second half of all of redemptive history. So the whole time between Christ's ascension and return. And this whole era is going to be marked by opposition from the world. But it cannot ultimately harm the true church. He says as much in verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. In other words, church, suffering will be all around you, all the time. But I will protect you. I will protect the true church with my very presence. The temple, the temple is always symbolic of God's presence. What God is saying is, this is my promise to you. As you go about the work of being a faithful witness, I know the risk, and I will protect you. You may suffer outwardly, but I will keep your soul safe. I am with you, even to the end of the age. A second beautiful promise in this passage is he promises to vindicate us. He promises to vindicate us. And this is symbolized in the two witnesses from verses 3 to 13. You notice that's, that's like a little, 3 to 13 is like this little parable about two witnesses. And everybody wants to know who in the world are these two witnesses. Well, verse 4 tells us that they are the lampstands that stand before the Lord. And if you remember earlier in Revelation, the lampstands clearly were a symbol for the church. And so these two witnesses are a symbol for the church in her plight on earth. Why are there two? Commentators offer a lot of suggestions, which I think are all pretty great. Maybe perhaps because Jewish law required two witnesses to verify the validity of any testimony. Perhaps because Jesus in the gospel sent out his disciples two by two to preach the word. Perhaps because there were only two of the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3 who were faithful. So he takes them to be the symbol for the whole church. I don't know. Either way, the witnesses are a symbol of the church. And we are given authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, that is representative of the entire time between Christ's ascension and his coming again. In verse 6, in this parable, John reminds us that we stand in a long tradition of prophets, of faithful witnesses who came before us, who spoke for God, like Elijah. He's the one who was given power to shut the sky so that no rain fell. Or like Moses, he is the one who was given power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. John is saying, you're a part of that same family. And that same kind of power flows through you as you have authority to speak for God. But in verse 7 and following, John also reminds us that we come from a long tradition of prophets before us who were rejected like Moses and Elijah. Because Satan would do anything to stop people from hearing the gospel, he rises up against faithful witnesses. He causes people to silence them, even through death in this parable. Notice the two witnesses are killed. In other words, the church will appear dead. 
and the wicked cities that are compared to Sodom because of its wickedness and to Egypt because it persecuted the people of God. The story goes that for three and a half days, the wicked will rejoice over the death of the church. They will party because the faithful witnesses are no more. But notice, after three and a half days, miraculously, God breathes the breath of life back into their lifeless bodies. And they're resurrected back to their feet. This is a scene that's taken from the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. And when the wicked see that the witnesses are back alive from the dead, great fear falls over them. When they hear the Lord call his church home to heaven and see them ascend before their very eyes, it says they were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. This isn't them being converted. This is them recognizing at last God is who they said he was. Why are they terrified? Because they now realize the judgment has come. And the faithful witnesses were indeed telling the truth about God. Because they're vindicated through resurrection. Friends, this parable is, is winding, it's confusing, but it's reminding you and me that we not only walk in the way of faithful witnesses like Moses and Elijah, we walk in the pathway of the faithful witness himself, Jesus. Because Jesus prophesied on earth for about 1,260 days. Three and a half years was the length of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus was the prophet who spoke the truth about God and he was rejected. Remember, he was not even welcome in his own hometown. And Jesus was killed by the spiritual forces of darkness. His body lay dead for three and a half days while his enemies rejoiced. But on the third day, God breathed life back into him and raised him from the dead. And brothers and sisters, resurrection means vindication. It's God's way of saying he is who he said he is. Everything that he said is true. He was a faithful witness. Truly, this man is the Son of God. Jesus was vindicated through resurrection at the end of his life. And this little parable is saying that you too will be at the end of all things. When you are raised from the dead, and you are welcomed into God's very presence, that the world will know that everything you said was true. That you were a faithful witness. Friends, this is the path of a faithful witness. This is the path that Jesus walked before us. Which shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Friends, our path too is a path of death and resurrection, of suffering, then glory. But along the way, we have God's promises to protect you from ultimate harm. Maybe not from those who can destroy the body, but from those who can destroy the soul. He promises to vindicate you in the end. The world will see you for who you really are. And know that everything you lived and said and built your life on, the gospel, is true. And lastly, he promises to you that your labor is not in vain. Your labor as a faithful witness is not in vain. Yes, our passage ends in an incredibly sad place in verse 13. Symbolized by death. The death of a tenth of the city or 7,000 people. A representation of those who were destroyed in the judgment because they rejected God's message and persecuted God's messengers. 
But what is incredibly hopeful is what happens next. The very next scene of chapter 11, there's another reference to the final scene in chapter 7, where there's a multitude in heaven that no one could number, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God. You know what that means? That means the more people that you could possibly imagine did receive the message, did repent of their sins, are resting in the work of Jesus on their behalf. In other words, it's it's not all rejection and humiliation. The harvest is plentiful, and your labor is not in vain. So I ask you again, what is the church to do In a secular age, what do we do when we feel most hopeless about the progress of the gospel? Brothers and sisters, we are to endure in our calling to be faithful witnesses. It is bittersweet work that God promises to protect you, to vindicate you, and that your labor is not in vain. So what do we do with this? Should we all go out and become confrontational-style evangelists? Should we all immediately go join the street preachers? I don't know. Maybe we should. Maybe their poor method of doing it is better than our superior method of not doing it. But I think the best method is still through authentic relationships that are led by love, that are marked by dignity for every person, that are marked by genuine curiosity and selfless service. I think the best method is when the good news is so sweet to you that you can't help but to share it. Like that donut you had, you got to tell everybody about. As John Stott reminds us, the nature of evangelism is the communication of the good news. That's it. That's your job, to tell the good news. The purpose of evangelism is to give individuals a valid opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. The goal of evangelism is the persuading of men and women to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and serve him in the fellowship of his church. If you're listening, it is not your job as a faithful witness to save people. It's your job to faithfully make the gospel message known. Or in a different image the Bible uses, we are the sowers. God waters. God gives the growth. God causes the harvest. Our job is to scatter seeds over the long haul of our life. Maybe you knew this, but it took 15 years for C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. 15 years to move from a hard-boiled atheist to what he called the most reluctant convert in all of England. 15 years of, of a wandering, winding path. But do you know what the central feature of his conversion to the Christian faith was? Friendship. Years and years of conversations with his circle of friends in Oxford. Friends such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson, Owen Barfield, and so many others. They were the faithful witnesses in Lewis's life. And the climax was this famous 3 a.m. stroll on Addison's Walk on the Oxford campus. And this conversation about Christianity as true myth. And nine days later, after that final conversation, Lewis took the final step of faith in the most non-dramatic way possible. He was riding in the sidecar of his older brother's motorcycle. Can you imagine this? On the way to the new zoo in Bedfordshire. As Lewis tells it, he says, I, I know very well when, but not how. 
the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one Sunday morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought. And that's it. Seeds that were sown over so many years by so many faithful witnesses and so many conversations finally came to harvest. And there was much rejoicing in heaven. Brothers and sisters, may we be just as persistent in scattering seeds. Whatever else we are called to do, may we be faithful witnesses who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Amen. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that in your wisdom you have chosen to change the world through a story and through a church telling that story to our friends and our neighbors. Lord, it is a bittersweet experience. Lord, we, we, know, we know the experience of the bitter. We know what it's like to be rejected. We know what it's like for people to not be interested or to think that we're crazy. But, Lord, also give us a taste of the sweetness of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, the grace that is there, that we are saved purely by grace, by faith, and not of any work of ourselves. Lord, let the gospel be sweet in us. See, we would be, we'd be faithful just to scatter seeds and trust you to do what you will with them. Lord, help us. Help us to be your faithful witnesses, following the path of Jesus himself. We ask this in the name of Christ.